Today on the Ozcham podcast, we are interviewing Mr. Richard Bartlett. Richard is a lawyer with the multinational law firm King and Wood Mallisons. Prior to his work at King and Wood Mallisons, he worked for 11 years at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia and before that at Allen's Law Firm. He's been in and out of mainland China for over 30 years, has studied here and can speak Chinese fluently. From Hangzhou to Shanghai and Beijing, Mr. Bartlett now has a plethora of insight and experience. Today, he reflects on his time in China over the past 30 years. First, we'd like to sincerely thank you, Richard, for coming and agreeing to do this podcast with Ostcham Beijing. The first question we'd like to ask you is a very general one. Why China? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, people ask me why I went there in the first place, and in truth, I honestly don't know. Um, I was at university in West Australia doing economics, and somebody said, look, we have an Asian studies unit here. You could do Japanese or Chinese. And for some reason, that appealed to me. Uh, I was already a traveller. I, I, I was a migrant already from the UK. I migrated to Australia in my very early 20s from the UK. So I, you know, obviously, I, I enjoyed travelling. And that just appealed to me. But no more than that. Um, I, think, I think China is an interesting place to live. Um, I think personally it's a very interesting place to live if you have some language skills um, because um, it's interesting uh, to talk to people and find out what's going on, not least because it's going through incredible change. And I think that's one of the things I feel quite fortunate about. I, I first became acquainted with China and then came to China in the late 80s when it was already on you know, the very beginnings of this incredible development curve. And so I'd studied some of its history. I knew its pre um Kaifang, its pre-reform history. I knew that a little bit. And I knew, uh, you know, its revolutionary history and its civil war. And um, then I was lucky enough to come and see this economy that was just firing up, really, and people's lives were changing and their expectations were changing. And I had five years on and off just watching that really and I found that to be very interesting and then like I say my intention was always to come back that kind of got derailed but when Commonwealth Bank um, and I discussed going over to Shanghai I I was really interested I wanted to come back I'd been back on holiday in 2008 just before the Olympics and I had been astounded at the changes then that was the first time in 12 years I'd been back to China other than Hong Kong and so already in 2008, I was aware that an, an immense change had taken place. And so when, like I said, Commonwealth Bank and I discussed this opportunity, I was very keen to come back. How much have things changed over, over the time that you've spent in China? It's changed an incredible amount. It's, it's really, it's hard to exaggerate how much it has changed, I think. I, I lived in Beijing in 1992 for the first six months of 1992. And I was at ROI in Chaoyang District, which is really, I, I live and work in Chaoyang District now, but it's just unrecognisable. It's like a different city. 
Uh, I went to, you know, I go back to Hongzhou. When I was in Shanghai, we went to Hongzhou several times, where I stayed for a year in 1989, 1990. And to me, Hongzhou, other than the West Lake, which doesn't really change, is unrecognizable. It's just a different place. Nanjing was the same. Shanghai was the same. I, I was there before Kudong was really, they turned a, a piece of dirt over. I saw Kudong from the Bund in 1989. And, um, you know, remember being told that they were going to build a city there that would be a financial center that would be as, you know, to rival New York. And you remember thinking, well, not in my lifetime. That's, that's impossible. Really. And that's happened. So, so that's one part of the change, but uh, it's not just it's not just the visuals. I think, um, you know, in the time I've been here, really, even though I didn't know this at the time, there's been a whole uh, body of law created, commercial law uh, that didn't really exist before. Lawyers as a profession have really come online. Uh, China has become, uh, and Chinese businesses have become the biggest and richest in the world. So a lot of mergers and acquisitions that are taking place are doing done by Chinese businesses now. Also, of course, when I was here, uh, China was not really a significant uh, export market for Australia, and now I think it's our largest export market. And so, you know, that's an incredible change. And in, in, in really, I know 30 years sounds like a long time, but it's for that kind of change, it's, it's really not. So uh, that's, that's another huge part of change. Um, social change has been quite incredible. Uh, I was quite surprised when I came back in 2015. I'd not really been paying attention, and um, my workmates suddenly started offering me lifts home, and they were they had cars. When I left China in '95 or the very early months of '96, nobody owned a car, and I remember that the, the guys I worked with, who were engineers in their late 20s, early 30s, were earning, you know, a few hundred qui a month. So. In that time, people's wages not only increased dramatically, but their ability to buy cars, their ability to go overseas on holidays, all those things, all those things changed. In your opinion, what has changed the most in Chinese business culture? Uh, well, I, I think, um, not that I was actively involved in business in 89, um, but I suppose really going from a controlled economy to one is driven and guided much more by market forces. And then I think the other thing is the fact that these businesses that you interact with and you work with are global in their footprint and their outlook, which just was not the case at all in in the late 80s. They, they were very regional, in fact. So I think because of the way society China's economy, the, uh, the infrastructure for Transport, which really was nothing like it is now, not with the Gautier or the roads. Uh, most um, most damways, most work units were very, very not parochial, but they were focused on their immediate environment. And now you have global players who are huge. So I think that's probably the biggest uh, the biggest change that they are plugged into and aware of and looking at the global economy. And that's that was not the case when I was here. Do you think that it is easier to do business in China now than it was, say, five or ten years ago? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, although not that I, um, I operate as a foreign co- in a foreign company now. But yeah, I think it is. I, um, there's, I think it's a more well-trodden path. Everyone is more uh, familiar with what should and shouldn't happen 
Um, so I think in '93, when I was working in a in a joint venture which was establishing itself, um, we didn't we didn't hit any roadblocks, <laughs> in truth. But it's it's a lot more. There's a lot more infrastructure. There's a lot more resources to tap into. There's things like Auschamp. It's it's more like business as you're used to now, and I think um, a, a, a more structured set of rules and guidelines and regulations. Really, you know, you know what you can and can't do, what you how to do it. It was much more of a, a feel your way sort of thing back in back in the early nineties. So yeah, I think it has changed, and I think as well, probably um, the biggest difference is the fact that. Other than the regulatory regime, which is different, um, but the the world that we operate in is very familiar and similar to the one that we come from. You know, so um, finding people to do business with, finding suppliers, finding customers, interacting with them, uh, the drivers, the motivators seem to be very similar for everybody, um, and the way you contact them is the way you do it at home. You know, uh, it's very modern. So, and then if you need things, if you need access to expertise, it's all here. Uh, especially I'm talking about Shanghai and Beijing, which are, as far as I can tell, very, very modern economies. So, yeah, that's a huge, huge difference. I think it was, um, I mean, the other thing about the early 90s, especially not being in Shanghai and Beijing, so my, my perspective was slightly different, but you felt quite isolated, I think, uh, in whatever city you were in. You felt that that was your city. And so if you needed, even when I was in Hangzhou in 1989, I wasn't. I was only studying, so maybe businesses have a better perspective on this. But to get from Hangzhou to Shanghai in 1989, uh, there was one train or two trains a day, and it took five and a half hours. And now there are there's trains every 20 minutes that take 30 minutes. So, so that was you know Hangzhou to Beijing was 28 and a half hours because I remember doing it sitting on RC, vowing I would never do that again um, and again Hangzhou to Beijing four and a half hours now on a high speed train uh, apart from flying if that's what you want to do and then there's a whole load of roads and infrastructure that didn't really exist either What has been the most fundamental change and who in your opinion drives this this change in appetite for development in China? Well I, I think the, you know, I think it's the 40th year anniversary of, of, of the opening up I think the government in 1978, the late 70s, seemed to me to to have a, an idea of where it wanted to be and, and roughly how it wanted to get there. And I think it's been driven from the top, uh, from the very top level of government. So I think Deng Xiaoping is seen as being the the architect of this, the driver of it. And in my experience, any kind of large cultural change requires leadership, complete leadership by him. And it seems that that's what they had. They need. They wanted to make a change, and, and they did. And I think as well, the the times I've been here, um, nearly everybody I meet is quite enthusiastic about the direction that their country is taking, and their lives and their standard of living is taking. Yeah, I mean, everybody's everybody I interact with. So that's not everybody, obviously. But everybody I interact with, their standard. Their expectations are, are getting higher. Um, uh, one of the nice things I noticed when I came 
here in 2015 with some of the, the, the junior lawyers, well, they weren't too junior, so they'd been working four or five years, so they had a bit of money, they had a bit of income, were not only going overseas, but they were taking their parents overseas who'd never been overseas. So they were sharing this this rise in living standards with, with you know, people who were put in the hard yards back in the 80s and the 90s. And um, yeah, that's, uh, I, think, I think everybody seems to be on board with that shift, but it does seem to be what challenges have you faced personally whilst being in China? Well, um, look, I think on a very personal level, uh, there was just no Western food whatsoever. Absolutely none. So McDonald's wasn't here, Starbucks wasn't here, supermarkets weren't here, chocolate wasn't here, coffee wasn't here. Uh, the only things that we had uh, were international hotels. So when I was in Hangzhou, there was one international hotel, Shangri-La, near the lake. And then there was the friendship stores, which were shops uh, run by the government. Uh, one in Beijing, one in Shanghai, as far as I was aware. There wasn't one in Hangzhou, so you had to get a five and a half hour train trip to Shanghai or 28 and a half hour trip to Beijing. Our friendship stores were like little, well, quite large delis, really. They weren't supermarkets, they were quite large delis, a bit larger than a deli. And they sold foreign goods and foreign food. And they would have Cadbury's chocolate and M&M and things like that, and coffee. So I think on a personal level, um, again, this is one of the changes that you really, you can't, you can't exaggerate, I don't think. Um, I mean, now China is, is better than being where I live in Perth. There's, if I want Starbucks, I've got five Starbucks around my flat within 200 yards, or maybe 500 yards. Uh, if I want a supermarket, there's one right at the bottom of my building, as you know, Jamie. Um, if I want anything, it's on my mobile phone through Taobao. And again, that's better uh, than I'm used to at home in Australia. Whereas it was the complete opposite in 1989. Uh, and I think not only um, was there no access to um, the things you were used to, the communications were poor. So the only way I could get out communications was on fax uh, or a very uh, scratchy reverse charges telephone call that I had to queue up for, I had to book. Um, Getting mail in and out was hard. Information was tricky because there were no papers. There was only there was no internet, of course, then, so there was no access to um, Financial Review or the Australian or the ABC or the BBC or whatever. There was just nothing. So we all used to have these little radios that were made here in China, shortwave radios, and um, you know, at one o'clock, the BBC would do the news, and if you got your aerial just in the right place, and you'd listen to the BBC, and that was your one way. It, it was quite quite romantic really it was sort of it's so completely different to the world nowadays uh, but that that was probably um, whilst it, it, it is a different experience that, that could get a little wearing because the other thing about the late 80s was that China was a lot poorer so the quality of the food especially when we were we were on scholarship so we weren't rich by western standards we were we were very well off by Chinese standards but even so we weren't able to go to an international hotel for a meal more than once a month, really, on our budget. And so the quality of the food that we were able to afford was quite low, especially in winter. So I think we got we got ill a few times. Uh, whereas now, it's like Pandora's box. I mean, there's everything in there, absolutely everything at your fingertips. So I think that's one of the large differences. Um, then I think um, if we're trying to get back to business, which I know people will be more interested in, I think there's a lot more 
other structure in the business. So uh, at, the, at the time, in the late 80s and 90s, like I say, everyone was feeling their way. There were very few regulations. Uh, there were people here, but I think people were in a lot lot greater sense making it, not making it up, but they were you know, finding their way as they went along with, with their um, Chinese colleagues who were in the regulatory uh, environment. So I think things were probably less certain, which, you know, this was always a certainty, so it was a, a lot of a, a less certain world back in those days. Um, but yeah, that would, actually in my mind, I, I remember the personal, uh, <laughs> personal discomforts mm-hmm. more than anything else. Actually. What are the primary differences between modern Chinese and Western business culture? Um, well, Chinese business culture... Um, still comes from a centrally planned economy. So I think to a certain extent, you still see people and businesses and even shop staff not wanting to step outside of their job description. Um, I wouldn't say that's the case with us, where we are, uh, but I do see that. Whereas I think at home, people are more familiar and more comfortable with taking taking responsibility for a, for a larger, you know, for a problem that may come their way. Uh, and I think that I see that, I mean, I, I watch, I think Starbucks seems to have done with that really well. You go and get a coffee at Starbucks and the experience is always top rate as far as I can tell. Uh, you know, the, the service is pretty good. So they've obviously found a way of standardizing things uh, that, you know, they, they've brought from America. Um, but yeah, I think probably businesses still um, are dealing with that. I wouldn't say struggle, but they're dealing with the fact that people still like to know what's the scope of their responsibility, and they're not keen to. They, they get they, they're uncomfortable stepping outside of it, and I think the reason for that, uh, as far as I'm aware, is and it's quite sensible that if you if you do something you weren't meant to do, then you might end up being liable for the consequences of their if they if they weren't good. So. I think that's one of the, the things that still persists. Look, uh, on the on the on the on the plus side, I think um, and I don't know. If there seems to be China time and everybody else time, and uh, uh, it's very hard working here. It never stops, as far as I can tell. I think people see this as an opportunity. Um, they may have been brought up in if they're, if they're my age, they're brought up in the sixties and the seventies, where they would have seen a completely different China. They see opportunity now, and I think keen to take it so people work hard and they work all hours I mean I, I get up I go to bed and people are WeChatting you know you know how WeChat is used everywhere well even in business it's used and people are WeChatting about the deal I get up and they've been WeChatting about it all night and that seems to me to be uh, a characteristic of business here that when it has to be done it gets done people don't stop so um, people work hard they drive those deals on. So, you know, on the plus side, that's, a, that's, a, that's the difference. People are very keen to take advantage of the opportunities that are presently uh, in front of them. This question relates to your experience as a banking and finance lawyer with Kingwood Mallisons. In your opinion, what are the primary differences between Chinese and Western banks today? Do you think they're really quite different or much the same? Uh, look, no, look, I... I, I think at the, at, the, at the top level, when you're talking about the large 
big, the bigger Chinese banks. I think they're different beasts. I don't know. I mean, they they seem in some ways to be more um, almost more government dependent. So I, I wouldn't. I don't know about that, but they, where their funding and their their risk appetite and their drivers, I, they seem to me to be different. But I have I have worked um, with small local banks here in China. Um, I think I, I don't think there's too much difference actually. I think the fundamentals are the same. I I think perhaps the difficulty for foreign banks coming to China is not is not getting used to a different way fundamentally of banking. I, I think it's um, probably getting used to a different risk appetite. And I think the difficulty for foreign banks, especially because they will be large, they'll have a, a huge great brand at home. They won't want to in any way damage that brand with something untoward or something that they don't perceive going on here. Whereas I think the local banks have a much more flexible, a much more working relationship with the regulators um, which they're able to take advantage of. So if they want to do something, maybe there isn't a regulation about it, or they'll go and I think they can interact with the regulators and say, well, what can we both get comfortable with? Uh, I think I think foreign banks are handcuffed themselves, really. They, they, they're very, very cautious about risk. So I'm not sure, like I say, it's a fundamental difference, but I think, I think foreign banks, to a degree, uh, yeah, they're, they're more, they've got, they're really looking back to the, the brand at home and that huge great value that the brand has. Um, all right, cool. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for coming today. We really appreciate your time um, and all the best. Thank, thank you very much. much. Pleasure. podcast. To learn more, visit our website at beijing.oscham.org.